for us and starts in John 14, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. So this morning, we're going to look at these very famous words of Jesus in three sections. First, we're going to look at what they meant in their original context, try to understand that, and then massage it into our context in two different ways. So lots going on this morning. Let's get started. First, we're going to, like I said, we're going to look at what, what might have the earliest disciples heard when they're sitting around the table with Jesus, or what might the people who are reading this, what might they have heard? When they're reading this. And Jesus' world is different than ours because it was a world that was filled with gods. Filled with gods. So every group of people, every nation, every place, sometimes even things like doorways, would have all of their own gods. So in in the context of Jesus, the question wasn't, are you going to worship God or not? To be an atheist was impossible. The question is, which god or which gods will you give your allegiance to? Which gods will you worship? And this is the question at the time of Jesus, but also at the time of the writing of the Bible, of the Hebrew scriptures, that they were facing. Which god or which gods will you worship? And in Hebrew, the word for god, or one of the words for gods, or spiritual beings, or powers, is the word el, or Elohim. So the Hebrew scriptures are trying to tell a story about a very specific Elohim. His name is Yahweh Elohim. Or you might see it if you're reading through a Bible, it's just all caps Lord. That's what it's referring to is this Yahweh Elohim. And it's trying to introduce us to this character. Now this word Yahweh, this uh, Y-H-W-H, is is a very, it's a notoriously difficult word to translate in the Hebrew. It means something like this, like I am who I am and I will be who I will be. Which is a very vague and frustrating way to introduce yourself. Like if you went on a date and you, you know, sitting across from someone a first date and you're just like, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And the person was like, you know, just I am who I am. Yeah, I just, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm just fully Sheila, you know. Uh, if that was me, I'd be like, check please, actually. Uh, thank you for that. Because it's, that's, it sounds a little bit pretentious. Like you just don't want to be nailed down. You know, you're kind of this vague personality. But what if sitting across from you is not Sheila, but God himself? To me, then, it makes a little more sense that this is how God introduces himself. Because for us, we all have ways that our language, for example, and our minds, we capture God. We make sense of things in our world that our culture has told us uh, how to make sense of. And if God is really this God, then he'll always push us to the edge of that language. He never wants to be held capture. This God specifically is not a regional God. He's a God, a God of one place. He is the God, it says, of the entire world. And as such, we we can't hold him captive by our language and by the ways that we think of him. There's always an invitation for him to be much bigger than we imagine. And so the most appropriate thing to say about this God actually might be that he is who he is. And we just need to get to know who this God is. That's the invitation of the Bible. So how do we get to know this Yahweh Elohim? Well, there's at least two different ways. The first is that Yahweh Elohim contrasts himself, or the Bible authors contrast him through storytelling. So Yahweh Elohim versus the other Elohim in the world. That's what's happening in Genesis 1-3, to this passage that we looked at for a very long time in the fall. 
There's all these creation narratives floating around about uh, who God is, what kind of world we live in, and who we are as people. So all over the ancient Near East, there's all these other narratives. And most of the time, they involve God, you know, fighting another God. There's a lot of divine violence going on. It says uh, that, that the gods are pretty untrustworthy. They're capricious. They might say one thing and then do something else if they feel like it. And human beings in general, they're, they're there as cheap labor for the gods to gather food and sacrifices for the kings who represent the gods in the world and the gods themselves. And so this narrative of Genesis 1 to 3 is, is contrasting Yahweh Elohim. He's very, very different. There's no divine fight for him. When he creates, he just speaks and the world comes into being. He is not capricious. He is completely trustworthy. Whatever he says, it happens. And he doesn't look at humans as cheap labor. He looks at humans actually as partners. He says, you're not cheap labor for the kings. You are kings and queens. And I've placed you here to partner with you, not to bring things up to me, but actually so that my blessing can come down and bless the world, that we can create cosmic flourishing together. So it's a, it's a contrast. It's a very different statement. And this is how the Bible authors continually will talk about Yahweh Elohim. They'll contrast him with other gods that are out there and the stories about them. So other biblical authors will pick up on this language. Let me just give you one more example. There's a guy named Jeremiah. He's a prophet, which means he speaks for God to God's people. And in one part of his story, he's calling Israel, his, God's people back. Yahweh Elohim, he says, you've left him. And I want you to call you back to coming back to this relationship with Yahweh Elohim. So here's what he says. Do not learn the ways of other nations. Don't be sucked into their stories. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. Their idols cannot speak, which is like, that was like a ancient Near East diss. You know, we, all the kids would be like, oh. Um, but he's saying, look, the, the, the gods of other nations, they can't talk. They can't speak. They cannot utter truth. They must be carried because they cannot walk. They can't show you the way to go. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm and they cannot do any good. There's no life in them. They are neither truth, way, or life. But, Yahweh, there is no one like you. It's interesting how he turns but talking about these other gods to addressing Yahweh. It's a worshipful posture. There's none like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. And this is the second way that biblical authors will try to introduce us to Yahweh Elohim. They will say, this is who he is. This is his name. So here, they're, they're, uh, he is giving us a name of God, which is El Shaddai. God is the God Almighty. So before he told Amy Grant that's what God's name is, he told uh, Jeremiah. You, you date yourself if you laugh at that question. So Yahweh is great in power. Yahweh is the true God. In Hebrew, he is Elohim Amet. He is truth. He is faithful. He is firm. The word there refers to something like a foundation that you could sink your life onto. Yahweh is great in power. He is true. He is the living God. He is Elohim Chai, the living God. That word there, which I'm probably grossly mispronouncing, it refers actually to green vegetation and flowing streams. It's referring back to Genesis 2 and this picture for ancient Near Eastern people who lived in an arid climate that their God is alive and he brings life out of death. He is the God who revives the world. He's the God of people who brings fruitfulness. He is great in power, he is true, he is living, and he is the eternal king. That regardless of who's in power around you, Yahweh is eternally in power. He's the king forever. And after this, Jeremiah goes on to lament how people have walked away from their covenant partnership with God. He says, you have left the way 
of Yahweh Elohim, and you have taken on another way, so come back. Come back to Yahweh Elohim, who is the way. Which, uh, in Hebrew, the word for way is actually Derek, <laughs> which I thought was just funny. It's like Elohim, you know, uh, El Shaddai, and then it's just like, and then we have Derek. Um, so, if you're a human, you could never take on the name of God. That's impossible. You can never do that. But if you want to pay tribute to this Yahweh Elohim, you can. So God's name is El Shaddai. He is the powerful one, God Almighty. You can't call yourself El Shaddai, but what you could do is you could take on a different name. You could take on the name, for example, of Ezekiel, which is my God is powerful, or Daniel, my God is the judge, or Ariel, my God is a lion. This is where we come back to our text with this cultural now knowledge of, of how names work and who God is. And we, we now have to be faced with the fact or look at the fact that Jesus is not saying, I'm Daniel or Samuel or Ariel. He is saying something shocking. He's saying, I am way. I am truth. I am life. He's saying, I am Yahweh, Elohim. And this is what gets Jesus into all sorts of trouble, is that he is applying the divine name to himself. And that, in that culture, is blasphemy. That is deserving of death. Because humans can't be God. That, that's outside the realm of their understanding. It's outside the realm of possibility. And so we have to remind ourselves of what Jesus is doing here. That he's entering into the cultural assumptions of his audience. So I've got some, some pictures up here. So in, Jesus is saying, Yahweh Elohim, we know who he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We have the shared idea of who he is. But in ancient Jewish thought, gods can't become human. That's just impossible. And Jesus is entering into that story, and he's saying, we, we, we share this context. We share this idea of who Yahweh Elohim is. Um, but then he's pushing them on it. He's saying, I am that Yahweh Elohim. This is the crazy thing. I have come to visit you. I have, the, the Yahweh Elohim is now enfleshed, sitting with you at the table, washing your feet. Crazy enough. And the disciples in general throughout the story are kind of like, they don't really get it. They're portrayed as just not really understanding because it's outside of what's possible in their mind. So they kind of just say to Jesus like, yeah, okay, buddy. Um, I'm getting to the age, I have teenagers now, and so I'm not very cool with them and their friends. And so this, I know this reaction quite well when their friends come over and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Give me a pound, pal. And they're like, all right, buddy. Sounds good, you know. You do you. Um, that's kind of what the disciples do with Jesus. They're like, okay, pal, sounds good. Their, their goal was like, do, say whatever you need to say, do whatever you need to do as long as you liberate us from the Roman people. It's not until Jesus stands on the other side of the resurrection that, that things start to click for them. Because that is something that breaks their brains. It breaks their way of thinking. Because, yeah, God can't become humans, but humans who die also don't live again. And if this guy standing in front of me is someone who has died and has risen, then now maybe it's time for me to question everything that I knew. And everything that we knew. If I was a disciple, that's how I'd be. It's like, we all got this wrong, right? Like, it wasn't just me. And, and if we're going to question that, then maybe... Yahweh Elohim has come amongst us. And maybe I need to change how I see the world. And that's going to make me super uncomfortable. It's going to put me on the edge of my people. But I also have to reckon with this guy who has come and said he's Yahweh Elohim and is now alive. And this is what I've been reflecting on this week. So this was just an unbelievably powerful idea. Um, If you want to go to the next slide, uh, Joel. This is the invitation, I think, is to live in this in-between space for the disciples. There's still ancient Jewish people 
But they are also people who believe that Jesus has come in Yahweh Elohim. They're living on the edge of who they are. And so this was a powerful and scandalous and explosive thing for them in their time. And I think it's just as powerful, or it can be just as powerful and explosive for us today if we allow Jesus to do the same thing into our context. So what I want to do with the rest of this morning and the time that I have here is to actually talk about two contexts and hear how Jesus might want to do the same thing for us, to invite us to a new understanding of who God is, Yahweh the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to talk about two different spaces. The first is kind of a more modern space and a modern way of understanding the world. And then the second is a postmodern way of understanding the world. So let's start with modernity. And I'm just going to use one of Jesus' statements for the sake of time. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now the first hearers would have heard, like we said, the, the, the Jewish people, they would have heard Jesus saying, I am God. But in a modern context, we're more likely to think of truth in a different way. We're less influenced by Hebrew thought than we are by Greek philosophers and Enlightenment values. So our view of truth is less tied to a God who is out there and much more tied to a group of facts that we can know and understand. Truth lives within our world in this picture. It moves. Truth is facts. Truth is objective knowledge. And they're facts that anyone at any time in any place could actually learn and understand if we were just to use the tools of science repeatable, measurable things that we can arrive at with our rational thought. So we can reason towards these truths. And modernity, very importantly, is characterized by two sets of optimism about our ability, or ability to do this. First, as humans, we believe we can stand in a neutral spot. We can let go of our feelings, let go of our faiths, and we can reach this truth by just being neutral, rational people. We're very optimistic that we can do that. And secondly, we are optimistic that truth, this kind of truth, if we were to come around it as people, it will unite the world. This kind of truth will, will unite the world. And we'll be able to make a lot of progress. So here, here's the thing for us. When Jesus says to modern people, I am the truth, we redefine what he said. And we place it in this kind of a picture. So Jesus now becomes part of objective truth. He, he is a fact. And we redefine Jesus based on our cultural values. That he goes from being this God person who redefines our world into part of the box of facts about our world. To propositional truth. This is where, if you've ever been part of church, where they take their statement of faith very, very seriously, and it's very, very important to them, this is where it comes from, is this idea. One of the places excuse me, one of the places that it comes from, is because what we need to do is we need to have this box of truth that we all agree to, these statements that we agree to about Jesus, about the world, about whatever. Now, I want to go on record saying that I believe there is such a thing as objective truth, and I think science and reason are wonderful gifts of God. But I also think there are some huge dangers that come when we redefine what Jesus is saying like this, when we equate Jesus and objective truth. I wrote like six but we only have time. We probably don't even have time for two, but I'm going to give you two anyways. Here's two reasons why this is very dangerous. The first is that it leads to pride. This way of thinking leads to pride. So follow, follow me here. If truth is absolute or objective, and if we can get to it by just being rational people, by being neutral, rational people, we can understand what the truth is. And then as Christians, we believe we have Jesus, who is the truth, then the way that we're going to see ourselves as Christians is as rational people. We're very rational. 
because we have Jesus who is the truth. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to think of other people who don't have Jesus as slightly at least less rational than us. They're going to be a little bit lower than us. So at best, what that's going to net out to is a sort of smugness about us as Christians and a paternalistic nature that we're going to have. We're kind of talking down to people. That's the best, I think, that this could net out in. This is where you get, you know, apologetics on YouTube. That's where this fits in. Or people who call themselves like the Bible thinker. If you've ever met any of these people, don't go searching them out. It's not great. But it's this idea that I can just step back, I can read as a neutral person, and I will come to obvious, the obvious answer that Jesus is God because it's very, it's, it's very rational. And so I can put myself in that place. Um, I'll also say this. I think there's some people, I know that there are people in our community, there's family members and friends and other churches uh, who like to, well, I don't know, they like to dunk on us a little bit. And part of it is this reason. It's because they have equated Jesus with this kind of truth. They're very much in a modern lens. And so when I'm not willing to go just put out statements about Jesus or statements about whatever, they think we're being weak and they think we don't believe in truth and believe in Jesus. That's where it comes from. Um, And they'll treat maybe you, if you're part of this church, and me and our church with wild amounts of suspicion because they're very much stuck in a modern lens. So at best, I think this leads to a smug and paternalistic attitude. But at worst, it can lead to atrocious dehumanization. And you might be like, wow, that escalated quickly. Uh, It does. Why did the early settlers that came here look at the indigenous people here as like slightly less than human? It's because they came with their enlightenment values and Jesus, and they're like, these people don't have either of these things. So they're kind of like, like they're less, right? They're kind of more savage than us. And we need to train them in these things, in the truth. That's what happened. It's part and parcel of this way of of viewing the world. So ideas have consequences. Ideas have real consequences. And the Bible is actually unbelievably clear that if something, like pride is the opposite of, of what we are supposed to have as followers of Jesus. So if things cause pride, we need to be very, very, very careful about them. It's the exact opposite of the character of the God we've just seen who kneels down and washes the feet of his disciples. So that's the first reason. It leads to pride. But here's the second reason. When we equate Jesus and objective truth, we completely miss what Jesus is saying and we change the meaning of this passage. He is saying, I am the truth. And we make him say Jesus represents truth or is part of the truth. It's very, very different. These, to me, make a world of difference. Let me try to explain this one with a story. So my wife's name is Sarah. She's the one who uh, gave the announcements this morning. Um, And she's awesome. Uh, She's my best friend. And early on in our marriage, I learned something very important about being married to my wife, Sarah. Um, One day, my Sarah invited me to take the garbage out. Uh, Yeah. She asked me to take the garbage out before I left for work. Now, um, in general, I have no problem taking the garbage out. I have no problem doing chores. I do them. But at that time in our marriage, I took the train to work, and Sarah took the car. And the garbage was near the car. That's where you take the garbage. So to me, I'm like, let's just be rational about this, right? Let's think it through together, okay? The logical thing for us to do would be for Sarah to take out the trash, right? She's already going there. I'm going, like, out of my way to take the trash out. So I explained this all to her. Um, yeah, I'm like, look, we're a 21st century couple, okay? We don't, we're not in the 1520s here. The man doesn't have to take out the trash. Just, like, you don't have to make a hot meal for me when I get home. You know, we, we are a modern couple. We're both able-bodied people. It just makes sense, Right? 
that you are headed there already, so you should just take out the trash. It's just obvious to me. And um, that led in, in our marriage to something we like to call conflict. Um, <clears throat> so what I did was I represented my reasons for wanting her to take out the trash. Like, maybe you didn't understand what I said. Let's not get heated. Let's just both be neutral. Let's both be Switzerland here. Just stay neutral, and we'll see the obvious facts and the conclusion that I've already come to, which is that you would take out the trash. And um, when presenting my pristine logic, uh, that did what hostage negotiators call escalate the conflict. Um, and, and basically what it ended up with is, is both of us heated, explaining our reasons, and the garbage is just sitting there like, someone take me out already, okay? <laughs> so here's what I realized. Um, Turns out I'm married to a person and not a robot. And that I probably should just get tattooed on the palm of my hand because every time I want to go like this, I would just see it and be like, oh yeah, I'm thankful. I'm very grateful that I'm married actually to a person and not a robot. And what I mean by that is both of us are married to people. We're married to people who come with a story. We're not just neutral, rational people. We also come with a story. And my wife, part of my wife's story is that she likes things to, to be clean. And one of the ways that her dad uh, helped them clean their house was by always taking out the trash. No one had to ask. He would just go and do it. She wasn't interested in a debate with me, and you saw where that led. She was interested in building a life with me. She was interested in us having our own story. She was inviting me to love her and build a life with her. She's inviting me to do that with me. And I don't know if you know me very well, but I'm the kind of guy who likes to have debates over three-minute chores with the people that are closest to me in my life. And she says, I want to build a life with you. What if on the other end of that story is not my wife, who I love dearly, is the most important person to me in the world? Sorry, kids, if you're hearing this for the first time. But what if on the other end of that story is Jesus himself, God himself? What might he be inviting us into when he asks us, when he tells us things about himself? Well, he actually lets us know in verse 2 and 3. He says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. This passage is not about a mansion in heaven. Jesus has been very, very clear, actually, throughout the Gospel of John, if you read it, what he's talking about when he talks about his father's house. He's talking about the temple. The temple is the place on earth where God comes to meet with his people. That's what Jesus is saying. I am going to create a place for you where I can be with you. I'm going to open something up so that I can live with you, so that I can make a life with you. And he's talking about his own body. He's going to take his body, and that's what he says later. My body now becomes the temple. Because what I want is not a debate. What I want is not that you try to make me into some sort of rational truth. What I want is to be with you. I want to make a life with you. And I'm going to give my whole life, my body, in order to make that happen. That's what he's saying here. And what does he want us to do? To rationally deduce that truth? No, he tells us again. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 1. Again, this word believe is, is one that we've shoehorned a bit into a modern uh, perspective, where we say believing means believing in this, believing in this little, that Jesus is part of this truth here. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying this. He's saying, I am El Hai. 
I am the God of life. I am the living truth. Come dwell with me. That's the invitation. He's saying, I am Elamet. I am the living truth. I am the person of truth, the God of truth. Come make your home with me and you will make your home with truth. I want to be with you. So bring your brain. It's part of who you are. Bring your questions. But never, please, never, never imagine that your little brain will be able to contain Yahweh Elohim. Never allow yourself to imagine that our culture has somehow got the corner on Yahweh Elohim. Don't lock him up in our skull-sized kingdoms. Because when the living God shows up in the person of Jesus, he doesn't invite us just to, to learn with our brains. He invites our whole selves to come and worship, just like Jeremiah had said to turn our words and to turn our life towards him in worship. Come and find truth, not as a concept, but as a person. That's what Jesus is inviting the disciples to do. That's what he's inviting us to do, to come sit at the table with Jesus, to come and eat, to come and learn, to build a life together, to come live with Jesus and his screwed up family as we try to pursue and make a home for Jesus here. That's the invitation. So if you're a more modern person, which some of us are, and that's okay, the invitation for you from this passage isn't to become a first century Jew or to become postmodern. That's fine. Be modern. Be as modern as you want. But you have to hear the invitation of Jesus to live in this space. That's the gift that you will bring, to live in this space where you see that Jesus isn't just part of this objective truth, which is great. Believe in that. That's okay. Jesus is someone and something very, very different. Come to him as the great I am, the Alpha and Omega, who sits beyond us, but also comes into our lives to wash feet and to give his life. So that's for modern people. Let's lastly turn our attention to those of us who are more postmodern. And this is generally true for those of us who are younger. And of course, Vancouver is a very, very postmodern uh, city in our values. So postmodernity, and very quick, quick and dirty, it's a reaction against modernity. So people, if you want to go back a little bit, Joel, people look at, the, uh, at, at modernity and they say, like, I don't like this idea of objective truth. I don't like the certainty and I don't like the optimism and I don't like the pride of this kind of single view of the world. And so truth for postmodern people is not objective. It's not like one little body of truth. It's relative or subjective. There's a thousand little truths. We all have our own truth. So we can still be sure about scientific things in the world. That's not a problem. Like, the earth is not flat, you know. Uh, Climate change is real. There are laws of physics and laws of mathematics and stuff like that. We can take the elevator with full confidence. Um, We can even like Jesus as postmodern people. That's not a problem. We can be Christians. But what we'll be continually tempted to do is reinterpret Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We will be tempted to reinterpret it like this. Jesus is my way. Jesus is my truth. Jesus is good for my life. And it makes total sense why we do this. The city that we live in is completely allergic to any kind of truth claims, especially coming from Christians. Because like a claim to truth is a claim to power. And look what you Christians did when you were in power. Does the number 215 mean anything to anyone? We don't have to look that far back to see what Christians did when they were in power. So we, it makes sense that we dampen Jesus' words in our cultural context. Of course we do. And it also makes sense that we then lose passion as Christians. Because any passion that we have for Jesus, any kind of interaction that we have with this resurrected Jesus, we can really only point it inwards. It's going to be very hard for us to take it outwards 
If we try to talk to any about it, anyone about it, it's going to sound like, you know, your friends with CrossFit, where they're like, I do CrossFit and you should too. And you're like, I didn't ask you, actually. And whoops, looks like I just not lost your number. Um, that's how it's going to feel. Nobody wants to hear that from us. So it makes sense. I totally understand why that we, we, we tend to do this. But at the same time, as someone who does want to hear what Jesus says, I don't want to dampen his words. I don't want to just try to learn to talk over him from my cultural moment either. We're always free to bring our questions. That's what we saw, saw last week. But we also want to hear the answers of Jesus. And we need guides to take us there because this is our cultural moment. It's very hard for us to see and to get unstuck. So I want to introduce you to someone who has been a helpful uh, pers- a guide for me as someone living in a very postmodern situation in city. His name is Julian Barnes. Uh, He is an English novelist. He's written uh, several great award-winning stories, but he also wrote this book. It's a memoir about death and mortality. It's called Nothing to Be Afraid of. And these are the first words they'll introduce us to him in the book. I'll use these words to introduce us to him. This is the first sentence in the book. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And here's why I think he's such a great guide for us. He's much more postmodern than modern. He talks in the, in the book about how his brother is an Aristotelian philosopher, which basically means he is very committed to modernity and that view of truth. But Barnes says, uh, in his smug little way, he's like, but I chose to become a novelist to paint more realistic pictures of the world. And we're just like, okay, I get what's a little, little shade there. So he's much more postmodern than he is modern. Um, but at the same time, he's not a Christian, which I think is really helpful to us. He sees things that we don't. He says, I don't believe in God, but he's also very self-aware of what that means for him. Not believing in God for him means that he's lost something, that there's something to be missed. And later he explains what this is. He says, missing God for me is focused on missing the underlying sense of purpose and belief when confronted with religious art. So he says this, when I look at beautiful works of art... Or when I see, you know, beautiful buildings that are made for the church. Or I listen to, uh, you know, um, Handel's Messiah. I can appreciate these things, and I love them, and I'm super drawn to them. But there's nothing behind for me. And, and I'm, I know I'm missing something. They're always fiction and never nonfiction, he says. And so they, they, they only get flattened a little bit. I love them, and I want to appreciate them more, but I feel like I can't get to the full depth. Because there's not someone behind them imbuing them with life and with color and with story. So he's, there's a whole other layer for him that he says, I can't access because I don't believe in God. And here's where he's a really helpful corrective for us as people who live in Vancouver. You know, our city tells us this story of kind of growing up, that if you were to grow up and see that there's no God, then you would feel free. Then you'd be free. You wouldn't have to come to church and fight for a chair on Sunday morning. You'd be free from guilt. You'd be free from this like smothering morality that's on you. You wouldn't have to like tell anyone about it. You know, it'd be great. Why not leave faith? And there's some truth to what's being said, but Barnes is also saying something. When you leave God behind, you lose something. I miss something. And that's also really important. There is a cost to letting go of this big story of God. So that's Julian Barnes. Now here's what I wanted to, here's the quote I wanted to give us that, that uh, I think is going to really help us with Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's what he says. The other month, I found myself at dinner with my neighbors, a dozen of us around a kitchen table long enough to seat Christ and his disciples. He's 
quite irreverent and funny. And also, he's describing the Last Supper. How could I not use this quote? So they're sitting around this table. Several conversations were proceeding simultaneously when an argument suddenly spiked a few places away. And a young man shouted sarcastically, but why should God do that for his son and not for the rest of us? First of all, I don't know what kind of dinner parties he goes to. It's never happened at any dinner parties I've ever been at. But the question this person is asking is, is different than ours, but it's the same underpinning reasons. He's saying, "Why? I, I want to question God. Why should he be able to do what he wants? Why should he decide what's right and wrong? Why should he decide who to bless and who to resurrect and who not to resurrect? So we could rephrase this question from the passage we read today. If we could, it would sound something like this. Why should Jesus be able to say he's the only way, truth, and life? Why should Jesus be able to say he's the only way to God? And here's Barnes' response, and I want to remind us that this is his response. I found myself uncivilly turning out of my own conversation and shouting back, because he's God, for Christ's sake. (laughs) Because he's God. As irreverent and hilarious as his words are there, I think they come as a helpful corrective to us who live in this soup of postmodernity. Why should Jesus be able to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Why should Jesus be able to say that he's the only way to God? Because he's God. Because the Bible says there is this Yahweh Elohim that's bigger than us, that sits outside of us. And this rabbi at this table who comes and washes feet is Yahweh Elohim. That is what Jesus understood about himself. That is why John writes us this gospel, so that we might see this. And this is what the saints have believed throughout history. That this Yahweh Elohim is God. Barnes continues, he says this, A common response in surveys of religious attitudes is to say something like, I don't go to church, but I have my own personal idea of God. This kind of statement makes me, in turn, react like a philosopher, like my philosopher brother. Soppy, I cry, which is a very British diss. Um, It means like wet, um, weak. The notion of redefining the deity into something that works for you is grotesque. It doesn't matter whether God is just or benevolent or even observant, of which there seems startling little proof to Barnes. It only matters that he exists. Remember, Barnes is not a Christian. He's not, he does not believe in God. But he says, if there's a God, and that is a massive if, then to say, oh, I just have my own way of viewing him, my truth and my life, according to Barnes, that is grotesque and soppy. We don't define God this way. That's not the way that it works. If there is a God, which again might be the biggest if for you, he defines the terms. And this is where Barnes' novel and our text come together. We are always, no matter what circle we find ourselves in, we are always going to be tempted to try to redefine Yahweh on our terms, by the terms that are set by our context and our minds. But in Jesus, what we see is a God who comes into our context comes into our world in order that we might know him. And he will always break our minds because he is always bigger than our cultural imaginations. He is not, as the Hebrew scriptures will say, some sort of small regional deity. He is Yahweh Elohim. He is God Almighty. Simultaneously, the eternal mighty God and the one who comes to wash feet and will give his life. That is who he is. And so Barnes is saying to us, let, if, that, if you believe that that's true, and if there actually is a God, it would make sense that you let him define the reality and set the terms, not the other way around. 
One more thing, one more paragraph from Barnes. He says, There seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event, apart, of course, from the normal pleasures of a weekly social event, unless you're an introvert, of which there are none. Um, There seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event, as opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live, which colors and stains everything. What's the point of faith? Unless you and it are serious, seriously serious, Unless your religion fills, directs, stains, stains, and sustains your life. His words are slightly abrasive, but I want to remind us they come from a fellow postmodern who is not a follower of Jesus. But he's calling us to something. He's saying, yeah, for me, I don't believe in God, so of course there's a flatness about my life. Of course I'm missing something. That's the trade-off. No Yahweh, my way, my truth, my life, but also something is missing. And he's like, yeah, that's my world, because I don't believe in God. But he's saying to those of us who do, and maybe we just slightly do, he's saying, if you believe in God, then why not let him be everything? Why not let him stain your entire life? And that doesn't have to make you a prideful jerk. But he's also giving us a corrective. He's trying to say to us, but don't let it be just some sort of like weak, soppy, you know, squishy, self-centered spirituality that inhabits our moment either. Don't go over to that. Because if you do, you'll always be missing something, just like Barnes is. We'll be missing, our our lives will get flattened, and our world will get flattened, and we'll miss out on this greater purpose that he talks about, that he longs for so much. And we'll always be needing to drum up purpose for ourselves. And and here's the other thing, we'll have nothing to offer our friends, who may at some point come with Thomas' words and say, what is the way to life? And we'll be like, I don't know, I only have my way. We have nothing to offer them. This is the deep challenge for us. To figure out a way to inhabit this moment faithfully as postmodern Jesus followers. And so many of us in this community have left modernity or fundamentalist kind of ways of viewing Jesus. And what we've done, and I'm not telling you to go back. Don't go back. Please, actually, please don't go back. That's not the answer. Okay? No matter what your dad tells you. But what we've done is we maybe not have, haven't centered ourselves on Yahweh, Elohim. What we've done is we've just moved to the other end of the spectrum. We subtly constrict God in a different way. It's just not the shouting on Granville type of way. It's a different kind of way. And so the invitation of Jesus for us is the same. That God always comes and he meets us in our mess. But he doesn't leave us there. He stands there as the resurrected Messiah. And he's like, yeah, it's weird. It's always been weird. 2,000 years ago, it was weird. For modern people, it's weird. But it's also going to be weird for us. It's not going to always fit super comfortably in our cultural context. But he invites us to have a seat around the table with Yahweh, who is way, who is truth, who is life, a personal truth, to come build a life with us. And in order for him to be at the center, he has to be able to challenge us and challenge the ways that we subtly lasso him by our cultural moment. 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat around a table with some confused disciples, and he said these words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it challenged the crap out of them. That this shared notion that they had of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I am who I am, that that person was sitting at the table with them. And Jesus says to them, as he comes, as the resurrected Jesus, come and receive me. Join me. Let me shape your world in order that we might actually change the world. 
that people might see the resurrected Jesus. And the same Jesus is here challenging us today. The Jesus who says, I am the way, which is not the modern way of colonizing and power over, but it's also not the postmodern way of it's my journey and there's no destination. Jesus is saying, I am God, I am way. Come to me, come take on my way of dying and rising, that you might become new humans and a home for God. Jesus says, I am the truth, and it's not propositional truth, but it's also not my truth. He's saying, I am the truth. It's a personal truth that God himself has become human and reaches out to us, inviting us into this relationship where he stands in our midst and guides us to truth. And Jesus says, I am the life, which is not about a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And it's also not about your best life now. It's abiding with Jesus, that's the invitation, and his family as one, to live a life of Christ. This is Jesus' invitation, and he invites us to it as we come to the table together. We invite you to join us at the table, to come, to lay down our stories, and to learn what it means to follow Jesus, to center ourselves on him, that we might find way, truth, and life. Let me pray to close. God, we thank you for these words, and we remind ourselves of them. For each one of us, we come from different contexts and uh, different stories. Whether we find ourselves in the stories I shared today or not, we ask that you, the resurrected Jesus, would come and meet us. We would be in our midst. You would minister, that you would call us out of our small stories, that you would meet us in these places just as you washed the disciples' feet and cared for them so gently and and listened to their questions, that you would also draw us out of our stories, that we might see you, the risen Jesus, Yahweh Elohim, and we might, in turn, worship and have something about us that says something to our city, which so desperately needs it. So we give you this time. We turn our attention towards you in response, and we just ask that you would meet and minister with us. In Jesus' name, amen.